Amen. In many ways, Josh is echoing what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10. If you have your Bibles open, I'd like to read this text. Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When you look at the life of Paul, we know him as a missionary. One who put into practice the faithful preaching of the word of God. A man who focused whenever he went into any town, preaching first usually in the synagogue to reach the Jewish people from which he came. And then if he was rejected there, going to wherever he could to preach to the Gentiles. But behind that practice, there was a passion and a prayer. You see, those three things coalesce. Our passion will lead us to practice. And in between those two, there must be prayer. For to move from the passion into practice without praying is sheer folly. That's saying, Lord, we really don't need you. And if we have a passion and we pray, but we don't practice, we're falling short. Now, if I were to do a survey in here and I were to ask the question, how many of us believe that prayer for the non-believer is important? I believe every hand of every believer would go up. But then the issue is practicing it. If I were to ask how many of us believe that we should be witnessing, every hand of every believer I believe would go up, we know what we ought to do. But it becomes the practice of putting those things in place and doing them that is crucial. Well, from this text, I want us to go back before we even start talking about practice. To deal with the passion and the prayer. Because notice where Paul begins. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. He's praying for his people. And that prayer is coming out of his heart that has a desire for what is best for the Jewish people. What is best for those of his, of his group. That word desire speaks of wanting the welfare of another person. Seeking their well-being. So when Paul says, my desire, he is saying, what I want more than anything is for them to know the gospel. I want them, their well-being, to be found in the gospel. And Paul is passionate about this. If you look back to chapter 9, in verses 1 through 3, his passion is really palpable in this. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You see, in these chapters, Paul's addressing the question about what, what about the Jews? The Messiah came and he was rejected. Does that mean God has turned his back upon the Jewish people so that now salvation is only offered to the Gentiles? 
And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is saying, no, the salvation, the offer of salvation is still open to all who would believe. And Paul is saying he wants those members of the Jewish family to be saved. He wants it so badly, he says, that if he could cut himself off from Christ, if he could endure hell for them, he would. That's how bad he wants them to know to come to know Jesus. Now think about what Paul is doing here. He's putting into practice love for your enemies. Remember that in Paul's ministry, it was the Jewish leaders in the towns that he visited that usually led in his persecution. It was they who would oversee Paul being drugged out into the street and beaten with stones. It was they who would oversee Paul being beaten 39 times with rods. It was them who would oversee Paul being thrown into prison. And here is Paul praying for their salvation. Instead of saying, Lord, bring judgment upon them, Paul says, I want them to be saved. He is demonstrating the love of God that reaches out to the enemies, a love that we are also to share in. For when we know the love of God, we will share in the passion of God to share His love with those around. Such love is modeled from an event that took place in January of 1956. Five men had landed and established a beachhead there in, in Ecuador to reach the Akua tribe. After working for months to establish a connection, they landed. And shortly thereafter, they were martyred, killed. Their story is made known best by Elizabeth Elliot, the wife, the widow of Jim Elliot in her book, Through the Gates of Splendor. What do you do after your husband has been killed by a tribe he's trying to reach? This is what Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint did. Rachel Saint was the brother of Nate Saint, the pilot who was speared to death. Two years after that event in 1958, they went back to that tribe to share the gospel. Now think about that. What do you do when you look in the face of the person that speared your husband to death? What do you do when you look into the eyes of that person who was there and witnessed your brother being killed and maybe even committed that themselves? Here's what these two ladies did. They shared the love of God in Jesus Christ. And God began to do a work among that tribe, a work that is still bearing fruit today. Such is the love of God that reaches out to even the enemies of God. And that is the love that is to compel us to preach and to pray and to have a passion that God's glory may be shared through the spread of the gospel. Now Paul recognizes something very important though. He knows that he is simply the wire that carries the electricity of the gospel. He does not bring about salvation. Indeed, you and I cannot change the heart of anyone. I can't even change my own heart. That is a work of God. God has called you and I to go and to share the message and to leave the results to God. That is why a true passion for the lost will result in prayer. Notice these two go together. My heart's desire and prayer. They are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have a passion for the lost without praying for the lost. And if you are praying for the lost, it's because you have a passion 
for the lost. It is God who we beseech to move upon and to regenerate hearts. And He works through the proclamation of the gospel. Therefore, you and I must never minimize the role of prayer in reaching a world with the light of Jesus Christ. The power of God in prayer is never to be underestimated. I was reminded of that this week in reading the story of Brian Ronfelt. He and his wife Angie went to a rough high school. There were a few Christians in the, in the student body and even fewer teachers who professed the faith in Christ. One of the teachers was a man by the name of David Bunton. A man who quietly practiced his Christian faith. Years after Brian and Angie graduated, they began connecting with their fellow classmates on social media platforms. And they began to notice something. Many of their classmates had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as they began to, to look at all the names and the people, they noticed a common denominator. Every one of them had been in David Bunton's class. Mr. Button had long since retired. He was in his 70s. So Brian went to visit him. Sat down with him and said, Mr. Button, did you know that there have been almost a hundred students that have come to know faith, faith in Jesus Christ through you? He said, Mr. Button started weeping. He said, I had no idea. Brian said, how, how did that happen? Mr. Button said, I don't know. He said, I wasn't able to really share or preach the gospel. So this is what I did. When my students would be working, I would pray for them. I would go through the class and I'd pray for them by name that they would come to know Jesus Christ. That's what I did. And church, God heard those prayers. Now we are emphasizing praying for the lost. We started with this bookmark, and it just goes through the different days, 30 days of prayer. But I know many are saying, well, I just, I, I like reading the scripture, but I don't know how to translate that into prayer. And, and I feel like I'm being repetitive. Lord, save this person, save this person. And there's nothing wrong with that repetitive prayer. But when you begin to pray the scripture, I think you are praying then in line with God's will. So how does this reflect in praying for who's our one? And I wanted to give you an example this morning. Coming up will be this passage, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now the question is, how do we translate that into a prayer for the lost? How do we translate that into the prayer for that one person God's laid on your heart and mind? Well, it may look something like this. God, I know you as one who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's what we just read, isn't it? That's praying back to God who He is. You have shown these characteristics to me time and time again. My heart breaks for the countless number of men and women who haven't experienced your character as I have. In particular, I pray for the person you're lifting before the Lord. I know he or she has some concepts of who you are, many of them probably inadequate or altogether faulty. I want him or her to know you 
as you truly are. Cause, and then pray for that person to see you as the great God you are and use me to reflect your attributes. Now that's a model of how to use the scripture to pray for that person who doesn't know Jesus. Now, we had ordered these weeks ago, but there had been such a response to the North American Mission Board that these were back ordered, but they're in now. This is a 30-day prayer guide. We have these available out on our evangelism resource table for free. You can pick these up, and what it is, for 30 days, we'll give you a passage of Scripture and then a guide in how to pray for the person God has laid on your heart. Now, here's the beauty of this. You can reuse this. You know what you do after you finish praying on day 30? Go back to day one and start again and pray the Scripture on behalf of that person. Now, when you stop out at that table, there are some other resources out there. For example, this is a little track called Two Ways to Live. It is a guide that you can use to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are also some books. Now, these are limited in number. For example, Evangelism by Max Stiles. To walk you through, you're thinking, Lord, I want to share, but I don't know how. These books are a good guide in helping to equip you in how to share. These things are part of the Baptist's favorite word, free. Okay, stop by and pick them up. If we run out, we will order more. We want to get things in your hands that will aid you in sharing the gospel. But it's got to start with prayer for God to work, for God to energize, for God to open up ways, to open up doors. Because the end to which we are praying is found in verse 1. That they may be saved. Now, one of the issues that we have in American Christianity is this. We become complacent because we hear the same words time and time and time again. We are used to the phrase, Jesus saves, but we forget from what Jesus has saved us. And when we forget that, we forget the value of the gospel. Now, that word save could be translated delivered, rescued. You could literally read that, that they may be rescued. Rescued from what? Now here's what we need to realize. The answer to that question is this. That we may be rescued from the wrath of God. Now I know saying wrath is not a popular phrase today. In fact, there are many teachers who, who try to promote preaching and say avoid subjects that are, are, are not easy to deal with. Church, we must recognize that our God is just. He is holy. And because we have rebelled against Him, we will face the wrath of God. Now some will say the wrath of God cannot exist because God is love. God can't be love and wrath. But I submit to you that because God is love, He is a God of wrath. The opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. And God is not apathetic about His people, nor the sin that destroys the relationship He has and desires with His people. Because God loves, He indeed is angry towards sin. Just like you and I become angry when we see a loved one pursuing a lifestyle that is destroying them, and we feel anger over that. God does indeed feel anger over the rebellion that we live in against His glory. To say God is love does not exhaust His character. God is also just. He is a just God. In fact, He is the one place in all the universe where true justice is found. 
Because since our God knows all, He is able to judge correctly. That means He is not just judging our actions. He is judging the intent of those actions. God is not just judging the words we say. He's judging the attitude behind them. Wrath is not God losing His cool. Wrath is God's settled opposition to anything against His holiness. Paul writes about this in Romans. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's right judgment will be revealed. Paul wrote about this also in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified as blood, much more shall we be rescued by Him, saved by Him from the wrath of God. You see, the primary issue for us is not our best life now. The primary issue is not, listen, you come to Jesus and all your problems will work out. The primary issue is this, who is God and how do we measure up to His holiness? The real issue is the character of God, that He is holy and our best falls, falls short of His holiness. And until we grasp that God is just and God will indeed pour out His wrath upon the sinner, then we will never appreciate or marvel at the gospel. Because the gospel is this, church. That while God is just and judges sin and the sinner, He is also merciful. That's the gospel. Paul sums it up in Romans 3. We come in mid-sentence. We, and we are all justified by His grace as a gift. We can't earn right standing with God. We are justified as, by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How do we receive the gift of justification? Through the work of Jesus Christ. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word means a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. Satisfies justice. Whom God put forward as a means to satisfy His justice by His blood. In other words, the death of Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Justice demands that a penalty be paid for transgression. God paid that penalty on our behalf. Our judge acted on our behalf that you and I would be acquitted. That you and I would be found innocent. The judge interceded for the criminal to say you are free of all charges because of Jesus Christ. Amen somebody. Do you understand the gravity of this? This was to show God's righteousness because His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that, look at the next phrase, that God might be just. He judges sin and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that we can be saved from God's wrath because God acted in Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. That's why Paul is passionate. That's why he wants them to be saved. He says in verse 2, I witness they have a zeal for God. They're passionate about God. You and I have friends like that. They're passionate about spiritual things. They're passionate about talking about things of God. But the problem is, is they ignore Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 2 Paul says, but not according to knowledge. Their zeal for God is not based on God's revelation in Jesus. 
You can have a zeal, but if it's not in the right way, it accomplishes nothing. Now, it's no secret now that I've developed a, a love for the game of golf. My wife and kids got me golf clubs last Father's Day, and I think they've lived to regret it. Last summer when I started playing, I was out with some guys, and I'm always eager to learn. So I'll tell them, you know, I play with people that are better than me. That's the only way to get better, so teach me. So I line up for this shot. I look at where the hole is, and I line up, got my feet right. I'm looking right. I swing right, and the ball goes right. It's, I mean, right the right direction. Okay? It was a beautiful shot, and I'm happy. I turned around like, did you see that? And the guy I'm playing with goes, yeah, if you had lined up correctly, it wouldn't have gone over in the other fairway. And I said, what do you mean? That was a great shot. What do you, what do you mean? He said, the hole's over there. I was playing the wrong hole. It was a great shot for the last hole, but this one, it was no good. You see, no matter how excited I was about it, no matter how good it was, if it was aimed in the right direction, it doesn't matter. A passion for God without knowing Jesus does not earn salvation. That's why Paul says they are ignorant, verse 3, of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, the right standing that comes from God is found in Jesus. So he says there's basically two paths now. You can either seek to be right with God through Jesus or you can try to be right with God through your own works. Trying to be right with God through your own works simply will not make you right with God. We can't be good enough to atone for our rebellion. All of our goodness falls short of the glory of God. That's why Paul comes back in verse 4 and he says this, For the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, the goal of the law to be righteous is, for, is Christ. To everyone who believes. So he's saying, my people, the Jews, he says, they have a zeal for God. But they're disregarding Jesus, who is the way to be right with God. So my prayer, my passion, he says, is they will come to recognize that Jesus is the focus of the law. And all the good things that the law points toward. You can't be saved. By your good works. You must have faith in Christ. That's the message we are to take to the world. That's why we pray. So their eyes will be enlightened. Not just with a zeal for God or to be passionate about spiritual things. But to know Jesus who died and rose again. There's a classic episode. And I think most episodes of the Andy Griffith show are classic. But in this one, Barney is in charge. Deputy Fife has been left in charge, so he's done what Barney usually does. He has deputized Gomer to be his deputy. They're out on patrol one evening, and they notice that somebody is robbing the town's bank. So they hide behind a car. They're afraid. They don't know what to do. And finally, Gomer looks at Barney and says, Shazam, we need to call the police. Barney looks back at Gomer and says, we are the police. 
it's easy for us to sit back and say, somebody needs to share the gospel with them. We're the messengers. This morning as we come to the invitation, I ask you to consider Paul's passion. First, look at your heart. Is there a passion for people to know Jesus? Does that passion translate to prayer? And then does that prayer become a practice where you tell? Bow your heads with me if you will.